0: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform Zencaster has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast.
2: You're listening to The Archaeology Podcast Network.
3: This is the Serum Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 195 for August 12th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we learn about several important safety topics from a harrowing experience that Heather had in the field last year. So remember to wear your seatbelts, stay organized, and wash your hands because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. And joining me today is Heather in California. Hi there. And Stephen in Calgary. Hello. And I am in Washington State. I'm actually in Birch Bay, Washington. We just pulled into a new RV park here, our last stop in Washington for the week. And it's first week of August. And I tell you what, I couldn't think of a better place to be because it's been nice and cool compared to what Reno is right now, where I'm usually at. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure people working down there. I've heard of people working in the southwest and Arizona. I couldn't even imagine right now in the over hundred degrees. I, I yeah. it would be unsafe to work down there. We we did a project about five years ago now actually, actually a couple months ago, down in El Centro California. And we actually had only about a session left. And yet we had to stop in mid-June because it was it was getting dangerously hot. And we just we just couldn't finish it. And so we moved on to another project we were doing up farther north. And it was still hot up there, but not El Centro below sea level hot. And We finished the project in late September and it was still hot and it was it was cooler, but it was still hot and it was the first time I'd almost suffered heat stroke. So Mm. we can possibly possibly bring that up because our topic today is, as I mentioned in the introduction. Field stories and we're gonna talk about field stories, but not just not just necessarily fun field stories like you like we always tell when you, you have a new crew or you're you're starting on a new project and you got new people and everybody's getting to know each other. We're gonna to try to learn from these field stories because you know, this is a podcast. You're supposed to learn from podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> or or so to speak. <laughs> so they say. So Heather, you brought us this topic and you, you had some of an idea, so let's kick it off with your your harrowing field story.
2: Sure. I'm putting myself out there. I'm making myself vulnerable, so be easy on me. (laughs) You know, I think to me, this, just like you were saying, Chris, is a good topic because as much as we, you know, what we're famous, archaeologists are famous for having, you know, a really good water cooler story or a good conversation piece at a party, right? We always have the cool stories that a typical job would not allow you to have or just wouldn't give you the opportunity to have. And I think, you know, they're a lot of fun. They get a lot of attention, a lot of good laughs. And I think, especially for the story I'm going to say, or I'm going to talk about is, you know, it definitely bonds people when you go through a crazy situation. But I think that, you know, as archaeologists, we need to make sure that, you know, I think a lot of us really enjoy the aspect that we're fearless and we, Mm -hmm. you know, are, we don't, you know, a normal person would look at, certain situations that we go full head first into and, you know, would look at with a a lot more reservation, And we don't do that. And we're proud of that. You know, that's kind of what makes us good at what we do. But sometimes we need to understand that there needs to be some some kind of buffer. (laughs) We maybe need to think a little bit better or prepare better. So my story, just kind of in a general sense, happened in Santa Barbara County in the back that country of Santa Barbara County. So we're in the Santa Ynez mountains and we are driving, we're doing a, a survey. The survey is basically they're kind of grading certain hilltops to make mega mansions. So, so to speak, there's kind of a general area and, and it's also mega mansions slash ag. So we're driving and we're going from project site to project site or, you know, locus to locus, and and in between the two are like ridge lines. The roads you're driving are access roads, which a lot of us drive, right? So we have the big Chevy Colorado, brand new. It was like a new cultural vehicle. It was my baby. I love this thing. <laughs> you can imagine, since I'm speaking about it in past tense, um, where this is going. But <laughs> So we're, we drive and we're, we have Collector Up. So we're driving through, and, and this is actually fairly recently. It was about a year ago, actually. And it was after the Montecito mudslides. So we're looking at a fairly new aerial, not new enough, unfortunately. So yeah. we're driving through, and we get to a point, and we're like, okay, you know, we can't go any further, but we're on a ridgeline, and there's no way in heck I am going to try to turn this truck around on a ridgeline line road. So, okay. So we go on collector and we're looking and my partner, she's like, you know, there's a really long way around, but it'll be cool view. And at least it's safer than turning around on a ridgeline. So we drove around and we get, we're, you know, kind of getting almost near the end. We know we're going to be driving over a road that, that goes over a Creek, And one of these creeks was the creeks that was washed out, one of the tributaries that was washed out during the Montecito debris flow, but we didn't know that. And so we're driving down and we're getting some pretty, it was pretty steep grade, fairly steep. And basically we have like a cliffside on the passenger side. You could literally just reach out and touch the cliffside. You have a 250 foot ravine on the, the driver's side,
3: mm-hmm.
2: so the passenger side, we have cliff, and on the driver's side, we have a ravine. And all of a sudden, I feel like I'm driving on black ice. So I'm from Chicago, oh, so man. I know what that feels like, or or hydroplaning. But there's no obviously snow, water, anything around. So what we are basically hydroplaning. on, but it's not hydroplaning. Is talus? It was all the you know all the. Uh, so this road had not been ma- maintained. The reason the road had not been maintained was because they had been washed out the road at the bottom had been washed out by the mudslide, and so they just so cal edison had stopped had stopped maintaining that road at least for that period of time, but we didn't know that, so we're driving down. And I can't stop the truck. And I'm literally have my entire body pushing on my bottom is off the seat and I'm pushing down on the brake and I can't stop it. And we're going and we're picking up momentum. And she's, I can see her looking at me at there, hoping that I look like I have my everything under control. <laughs> <laughs> she said the look on my face was like, oh crap, basically. So Nobody says anything because I'm just trying to solve the problem that's in front of me, and there's a boulder, and I see this big boulder I mean it was it had to come up to the top of the truck, and there's you no know, what am I It's right in the middle of this small road. I mean the road's maybe you know ten feet twelve feet wide, and I just said, "Okay, well, I'm not swerving, so I'm gonna take it." So I just drove head first or you know right dead in, dead into the boulder and, and we flipped (laughs) and yeah, so we're everything, the glass, everything's popped. The airbags are off, you know, all opened and we're, thank goodness on the side of the truck. Well, I'm thinking, and this is, this will date me. I'm, I'm thinking back to Chip's. You know, Chip, like the that show, <laughs> Chips?
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eric
2: Strada and whatever. And you always see the, the people that are in the car and they're literally just teetering off the precipice of this, right? And if they move just a tiny bit or sneeze, they're going to fall. So that's like in the back of my head. And I'm now, it's now on the side of the truck and we're kind of over a little bit. So the tire's a little bit off the, so we're even tilted towards the ravine. So... My partner, she is tiny girl, strong and tough as nails, but tiny girl. She's trying to push this Colorado, you know, uh, door open. She finally gets it open. She climbs up on top of the truck very carefully. And I'm just like, oh God, please <laughs> let it be okay. She goes, you are not going to believe this. Where we landed, there was one little jut out of, of uh, earth that was maybe another three feet beyond the nor- the width of the road. And that is exactly where we landed. And it was a length of maybe oh, 10 feet. That was it. It was just divine intervention that we happened to flip right there. So we pull everything out and we're trying to do our locators because we had these emergency locators. So that's good. You know, we had good. They didn't work, but the fact that we had them, that's a step in the right direction, right? <laughs> but they yeah. didn't work. And we have no reception. And we're looking on Collector and we're saying, okay, well, okay, what was this going to take to get us out of here? We thought maybe two hours tops. We can we can do that, right? It took us about seven hours to get out of, oh, to get back to the road. It was crazy. And I tell you, she and I, we, we got along before. We had only, I'm, I am technically her supervisor. And we had kind of started working together maybe a few months before that and really knew that we were clicking well and it was a good gonna end up being a good relationship. And now we're soul sisters, forever bonded, no matter what. Nice. <laughs> but anyway, so we got out of there. It was a crazy situation.
3: So your your spot, your 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 receivers, the like I assume they were like spot receivers to, to broadcast your emergency location. Nobody ever responded to that or they didn't work.
2: No, we did hold the locator button down. It was a new receiver. And bad on me, I took it, but I didn't know how to work it. So um, it was, it was user's error. (laughs) I thought I was using it correctly. I was not. So here's one lesson Yeah. that when you buy new equipment, make sure that the people that you're sending it out to know how to use it. Because, you know, when you're in a, and do, and do dry runs with it. So we were hitting it and thinking it was working, but it wasn't because apparently once we finally did get reception about an hour into our hike, our safety manager, which we do, our company does have a safety manager. She said she had not gotten anything. So she didn't know. And so that was lesson number one. Then she's like, well, I let me, I can get you, I can rescue you guys. And, and we're like, nah, we got it. You know, we know what we're doing. We can hike out of anywhere. Little did we know it was going to be six hours, six more hours of hiking. And it was pretty, yeah, pretty strenuous hiking to get out of there. But.
3: And were you guys, were you guys staying in a hotel room that night? Was it just you two out there? And theoretically, if you hadn't destroyed the truck, you would be going out the next day?
2: No, we were going, we were done. Actually, we had just finished. It is local, to, generally local to where we are. So we were going back home after that. And, you know, the funny thing is once we finally got to, she offered, I, let me call, let let me call, you know, emergency, get, you know, get somebody out there to rescue you. And all I could see in the back of my head was there is no way, because there's not, not a whole lot of news in Santa Barbara. There's no way I'm going to be on the six o'clock news getting helicoptered out of this ravine it's just, I'm not doing it. Yeah. I'd rather yeah. like, I don't care how long it takes. I'm not going to be that person. So we said no. <laughs> and, uh, I said no. And my partner's like, I'm not going to argue with her. And, um, yeah, it was, it was uh, crazy. And then I had actually met the, the owner rep the day before. And so he, one of his workers on one of the hilltops, I guess our truck caught the sun and he. Had the guy come out and he looked and he goes, oh, my gosh, that's Heather's truck. Because he had just seen me. And he's looking down, and he's seeing it like flipped over <laughs> and he's freaking out. So they take the ATV down there and they look around and he said, OK, number one, there's no bodies. And number two, there's no blood. So I think they're OK. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now we just got to find them. So they were looking while they while we were hiking, they were looking for us. But anyway, funny story.
3: So we're we're talking about lessons learned from these things. I can see a few things, and let me see. if I, I undoubtedly you have told this story numerous times to your field crews and and other people in order to, you know, people learn a lesson right. from what happens. And yep. And I can see a few things. Let's see if I get it right. The first one is the the personal locator beacon. Of course, yes, you're not the only one that takes those out in the field and doesn't know how to use those. We in my work in the Civil Air Patrol. I mean, our bread and butter these days, it's not really plane crashes. Planes don't crash as often as you think they would, right? And when they do, it's usually on landing or it's usually in a, you know, close to the airport environment. They don't just die in the middle of nowhere and then crash, right? I mean, that right. that does happen, but it's rare. So most of our bread and butter for search and rescues is hunters and hikers that are out and they've turned on their spot device and it's sending out a signal because it sends out the same exact signal as what's called the ELT or emergency locator transmitter on an aircraft. And the aircraft one is, is either triggered manually. And if you know you're going to crash, you can trigger your signal manually. So when you're higher up in the, in the air, more people will hear it. Like if you're going to crash into a ravine, don't wait for the ground to impact and turn that thing on for you because it will from G forces, but turn it on in the air. So, you know, you can broadcast a little more widely, but obviously when you're out in the middle of nowhere, you don't have that option. So one of the things you do is you you click that, you turn it on, you make sure you know how to work and it's transmitting. And then if you're able to, you know, people tend to descend into lower areas because, well, it's easier to walk in, you know, walk downhill than it is to walk uphill, especially when you've just been through a harrowing experience. But, you might want to just go stand on a ridgeline and stay up there for a minute (laughs) while this signal gets out, (laughs) you know? So, um, so it's out there.
2: We had, um, we had two choices. We could have gone down or we could have gone behind on the road that we just came. And we were looking Mm -hmm. at that. We're like, you know what, that's going to be, it's going to be a long walk. It probably would have been shorter in hindsight than the other, (laughs) but it's going to be a long walk. There's no shade. It is bright and it was hot that day. We only have, we have water. I was not even dressed in field clothes, unfortunately, because I was going to a business meeting after it, and it was going to be a real quick survey. It wasn't supposed to be, it wasn't supposed to be hours and hours. So my dress pants I was wearing—that was the last time those were worn. Anyway, exactly what you said. You you go down, and sometimes that's not the best route. But anyway,
3: so the ne- the next one would have been really having an emergency contact, right, or having somebody know what your field situation is. I actually used to get really pissed off at this one company that required crew chiefs to call in every single day because while they were calling in to report acreage and to do different things and they could send an email too if they want, but they had to send something in at the end of the day. And it really seemed like initially to me in my rookie state, it seemed like it was just nitpicky micromanaging. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. But really, if you don't if you don't report in, again, I go back to aircraft because most of the time we're searching for something, it's aircraft. And you always go back to the last known reported position. And when we're out doing search and rescues, whether we're on a ground team or an air team, we have to report in every 30 minutes and we have to say our location, whether it's in reference to a a transmitting beacon or a highway or something like that. But we say our location. That way, if we don't report in, if you miss two check-ins, the whole search stops and they start looking for you right. and they know where to go to your last known reported position. So if you're out in the field and somebody at least knows where you're going for the day and what happens if you flip and crash your vehicle and let's say you guys were walking out and then one of you got hurt in the walkout and now you don't want to leave. You never leave somebody behind. You just wait right. for rescue. Right. Unless you can get up to high ground and you can get a cell signal out or you can get something yeah. like that. But you don't you don't leave because the person that leaves always dies. I mean, I've seen those movies before.
2: <laughs> well, exactly. And, you know, in this, while we were walking, we came across bear tracks, very fresh bear tracks oh, yeah. and, and mountain lion. So, and mountain lion scats. We, we knew, you know, we were, and it was very fresh. So, you know, in that, th- that area, Santa Barbara County, I mean, it's just, you know, infamous for it. And yes, we, you know, it's a funny story and, and I'm glad you mentioned that. So, you know, I'm, I, am i i tend to like, you know, sometimes fly by the seat of my pants and, <laughs> hired somebody, uh, her name is Jennifer and and i I can say her name because she's she's always happy to hear her name on the pod because she has no problem
3: with it. Hi Jennifer.
2: Hi Jennifer <laughs> and she was like she's like my mom. She would she would uh when we got these the you know these beacon things she would always be checking in on me or she'll let me go, okay where are you going? And because in the area we have AT&T and Verizon. I always, our company always used AT&T. And I actually had to say, you guys, AT&T does not work in this area. We need everybody that has cell phones to have Verizon because it just it just doesn't work. And I'd rather at least have something that has better reception in this area than AT&T. So they did switch to Verizon, but she was absolutely, before we got the, these beacons things, which were fairly new when this whole thing happened, she would always call and then at the end of the day, she, when she thought I'd be out, if I was going and she would, and vice versa, she'd be checking in on me. Did you, are you okay? Are you safe? <laughs> and, um. It was always nice to be cared for in that way. That kind of started. Now we do do that. And in fact, I don't even send anyone out by themselves anymore. I won't do it, period. Even if it's an urban environment. These days, you just can't take the chance. It's not worth it. It's better to just put it in, you know, put it in the bid to begin with. Nobody should be going out by themselves. But even when you have two people, like what happened in this incident, it, you know, it's still worse can happen.
3: All right. Well, that's a good place to take our first break. We'll come back. I've got a few more things to say about this and I see Steven's hand up. So this might, you know what, this one incident, Heather, might take us through the end of the show. Who knows? So there's so much, there's so much to unpack here. (laughs) All right. We'll see you guys in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zen Caster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code CRMARC.
0: What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation?
3: All right, welcome back to the Sierra span Podcast, episode 195. And this episode is Heather barely survived a car crash up in the mountains. <laughs> 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 it's practically the entire episode. But no, so so we're talking about some lessons to learn from this. And, and the other thing that really brings us up, and, and you know, from the sounds of it, you know, you guys walked away alive. So you more than likely did everything right. Right. So, I mean, there's always one little thing like you could have turned this way instead of that way, something like that. But you guys, you guys survived it. So that is, you know, job number one. But I think we've all seen different circumstances where people are put in. What could be a a big vehicle yes. that they've a, a vehicle of a size they 've never driven before in four wheel drive and and let's not even talk about the circumstances in which you use four wheel drive and you don't use four wheel drive that is a, a debate we could have for right. days and then just driving on gravel roads i I've been with people driving on gravel roads that have never like they're city people you know they've they've never really driven on gravel roads before yeah. and now they 're doing it on a vehicle whose weight they don't understand and and, and not only that, but this all goes back to the almost, I want to say macho, but I'm applying that to men and women because Mm -hmm. crew chiefs in my experience feel like they always need to drive. And you know what, to me, I I think it's coming from the military, but to me, like, sure. I end up driving a lot of times, but that's only because I don't trust the other people to drive. (laughs) That's just (laughs) because of driving skills. But realistically, I would love to be in the passenger seat, being looking at the maps and just directing somebody else on where to go. You know, that's more of a, I feel like that's more of a leadership position, but crew chiefs always need to drive. So you might end up with somebody who who knows they're a crew chief and, and because of that, they jump into the driver's seat. But the reality is they might not have the skills or the training for that sort of situation. Yeah, I don't know. We, we tend to thrust these people. We just, without even thinking, we're like, here's the keys to an F350, go nuts. You know, like they've never driven anything bigger than a Honda Civic and you're like, have fun out on the mine, you know, or wherever you're going.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, you have different kinds of drivers. We have people that are, you know, maybe they've never like off-roaded before, but it sounds like a lot Mm -hmm. of fun. (laughs) So now that I have a company vehicle and I'm being paid to do this, I'm going to try out my off-roading skills. You know, that's kind of maybe exaggerating a bit, but there are people (laughs) that, you know, you're using somebody else's truck and they're not as careful.
3: Drive drive it like it's a rental.
2: Exactly. And and (laughs) that, you know, a truck's a truck. It's an internet, you know, it's an object. We can replace a truck. We can't replace people. But in that truck, when you ruin a truck, there's people in that truck. So, you know, it's, it's something that we really need to think about. And I think that, you know, I've been in some harrowing, other harrowing positions and, you know, related to driving where people are like, oh man, this is so cool. We're off and we're on an access road. People don't realize the access roads, many of these are not compacted. They're, they're used to, you know, by, by some like military grade vehicles. They're, they're not graded and compacted for regular travel. And so people just don't think that they think, oh, this is cool. Oh, you know what? I'm like really testing out the shocks in this car. Well, maybe you should think (laughs) about why you're testing out the shocks. Like you're jumping up and down. I mean, obviously this is not safe. You know, we talked a lot about this and my partner, she was like, you know, it's a good she's, she's really, you know, good with the, good with the truck and she's motorcycle and, you know, she's tough chick and she knows what she's doing. But we talked about it often actually right after that. And while we were walking that my experience with, you know, driving in Chicago winters growing up and I didn't leave there until I was 25 and understanding, you know, how a, how to react to a car out of control. definitely helped with me being able to, you know, react to it in a calm manner, not freak out, not swerve to avoid that boulder. Because if we had done that, the only way out of there was to go straight on at the boulder because there, there was nowhere to go. And to stop would have made it worse. We could have like gone foot, you know, front, head over whatever uh, to take it the way we did really was the best way to take it uh, as scary as it was and the fact that it totaled the truck after only five thousand <laughs> miles on it more unfortunately <laughs> but it, we, we we both came out alive with no scratches actually no no bumps or bruises really wow, so we were very lucky it, it is impressive we are more hurt by the seven hour trek out of there than we were by by the by the accident itself but I thought we took a we thought about this a lot. And we thought, you know what? We need to have driver training courses because you know, th- we try we should always avoid those off road if we can and those kind of, you know, the access roads because you can't assume they're being maintained, obviously in this case it wasn't, but we weren't aware of that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, being able to always control the controllables, right? But then still be able to handle a situation when it does come your way and the best way to do that is prepare and to have a driving test. So our company now does do, they do driving. Now I think we could do probably a little bit more, but they, they do do online driving tests, the off-roading, how to handle trucks and that sort of thing. I think it might even be good to do, especially when you have a large project where you're going to do a lot of off-roading to actually have people do, you know, a two hour, you know, in-person driving Course, I think would be a really good idea. You know, just like you have when you have these large projects where you have to be trained to be near the railroad, that sort of thing. I think is yeah, definitely valid.
3: Yeah, that's true. And you know, the other thing that that this brings up too is is the the quality of vehicle sales. I mean, you guys you guys flipped over a, a big truck and and you ended up on your side, right? Uh, yeah, the truck did. Yeah. So, did it have the side curtain airbags that went off?
2: It did, and we're lucky because our you know company. I'm lucky company they they don't spare expense on quality vehicles. They get good quality vehicles. Yes. We had a we had a cab on the back of the truck plus we had a huge rack which I I had ordered it so it was nice it was for my office so they let me order whatever I wanted on the truck which is really nice. But I had actually ordered yeah. that rack. I actually ordered the rack because there's I have a big wet screen drying rack that I that I'd like to take that doesn't fit in the bed of the truck. And so I wanted to be able to put it on there, but we both, my partner and I both absolutely agreed that that's probably a big part of what saved us because that, that rack is so sturdy and it was so big. It actually created this, you know, angle that the car couldn't, it didn't have that kind of like sloped angle where it would have been easy for us to keep turning. It's, it stopped it. I, I really, really believe that.
3: Well, and that's the other point towards the vehicle, too, is is so many companies, uh, and you know, in in an effort to reduce cost and things like that will we'll either either maintain and hang on to vehicles. And I mean, you see the pride in somebody when they say, oh, this vehicle's got 375,000 miles on it. But that vehicle's from like, you know, 15 years ago. And one of the safety protocols in this vehicle right now, you know, I I, right. I remember this company that I was working with a little over a year ago, I was doing some contract work for them. And, and I had to, at one point, I had to drive one of their vehicles. And I'll tell you what, this thing was barely functional. In fact, it broke while we were out there. It just the transmission totally died. You know, somebody tried to put it in four-wheel drive and it just didn't go. And but anyway, this vehicle had roll down manual roll down windows and it just yeah, nothing worked on it. The air conditioning didn't work and we're we're down again in the between El Centro and and Yuma, Arizona. And I'm like, it it was a good thing it was like April, right? It wasn't super hot out yet, but it was still just these things. It's like really are you saving this much money or are you just hoping that nothing happens? You know, and and you know you don't need a, a decent vehicle for your field crew.
2: It's not worth it in the end. It's really not. Yeah, it's
4: not. Because
3: you're right. You know, I, I, I think about that all the time. You know, I had my Toyota Tacoma and that I bought that vehicle specifically as a field vehicle for this big project. And, you know, that was also my personal truck after we were done with that project. And yeah, I just wanted to save a little money in rental. We still had to rent another vehicle, but I made sure from the company that we got something decent. And in fact, they gave us, in fact, I think Border Patrol down there thought that we were one of them because it was an all black, like GMC Yukon. <laughs> It was, it was fantastic. It was, it was an amazing vehicle, but, but anyway, you know, when people own their own vehicles, they just, they just never buy, they never buy quality. And they, and it's, it's one of those expenses that you just need to write off and say, you know what, we're going to need this kind of thing. And if you have the insurance and just in case somebody does total it after 5,000 miles, you know, you can get a new one. (laughs)
2: Right. Right. And you know, I think it's, I think it's also something to be said for, you know, we talk about what we expect from techs or from, you know, field crew, it's not fair to expect these, you know, people that are having a hard enough time getting by anyway to have these trucks that really are the safest. And then what are you going to do now? You know, you have projects where you really can only have a certain amount of trucks or a certain amount of vehicles on the project site. Right. And you're going to expect somebody else to go in a non-company vehicle you know, it's just liability, and and not that that's the most important thing, but we're these are businesses, so that's what we look at. It's dollar <laughs> and cents, and liability wise, it just is stupid. It's stu- it's penny wise and
4: pound foolish. Yeah, it takes me back to the time back in the '90s when we were all getting started, and like I, I remember one field project I worked on. You know, our field vehicle is essentially the crew chief's grandmother's Dodge Omni. So, <laughs> oh you know, to, to be fair, it never would have made as far as the boulder anyway. <laughs> There's their safety. It, it can't actually go off the road. But yeah, it's, it's like in, in the 90s, it, uh, particularly in the Midwest, it was not uncommon that, you know, people would use their personal vehicles and then, you know, take some sort of stipend. And, and that is ridiculous.
2: I drove my Toyota Echo. I can't believe the places that I took my Toyota Toyota Echo. I don't know if you know those. It's that real small compact car. I and I actually got that thing to. It was two hundred and ninety five thousand, like five thousand, right before three hundred, and I finally had to give it up. First, I did give it to charity. It was just wasn't hanging on any longer. But I cannot believe some of the places that I brought that Toyota Echo. No, I had no business, but I had no other choice. I mean, they weren't providing a truck. And there's a couple of times there's one project I was on for five years that I drove this small car on it quite a bit. And I lost my bumper twice. And thank goodness, the Native American monitor was also a body man. So he was able to put my bumper back on both times. <laughs> it was just, just stupid, though. I can't believe that they would allow me. I'm very impressed. That Toyota Echo is an impressive car, everything I put it through.
4: I'm, I'm definitely hoping that nobody actually does this anymore. That Yeah. Fleet vehicles, fleet trucks are now more the standard.
3: Yes, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, for sure. So I am noticing some some issues because I, I'm considering this myself for a project in another month here. But I am noticing some issues with smaller companies such as mine where people are being asked to bring their their personal vehicles out in the field. And I do plan to ask people to do that just because we're not going to put more than one person in a in a vehicle. To be honest, it's going to be a small crew, so there will be three to four cars, four cars maximum, going out to these areas. And and I've already spoken to the to the you know, steward at the place that we're going to do this. And she's like, yeah, that's fine. But I am going to say, just like when you require certain field gear of crews, you say, hey, must be able to, I don't know, what are the, what's the common language? Carry 50 pounds, walk 10 miles, and, you know, carry all your water and stuff like that. But also have a four-wheel drive high clearance vehicle. I'm sorry, but if you don't have that, you're not going to go. <laughs>
4: right. <laughs> you know? yeah. So,
3: You know, that's the thing. And, and along the lines of, just to wrap up this segment, uh, and then we'll move on to something else. Along the lines of the safety of vehicles, and and this wasn't an off-roading situation, but I think I mentioned it on this podcast. I know I did on one of my other shows, but uh, it was just a month and a half ago on that same uh, place that I'm going. It was a different project, but in the same location up in northeastern Nevada in the middle of nowhere. And my wife was on the project with me. She's an archaeologist. And we were just heading into the mine, and we had some issues just it was a whole thing. We we got there at night. There were no camping spots. We were in our new RV. So we camped on the side of the road that morning and we were just going to take it to the mine entrance and leave it there all day while we went and worked. But we saw this RV park that we didn't see in the middle of the night. So we slammed into the RV park, got it all set up. So we were running a little more behind schedule than we wanted to. And because of that, I was probably going about 10 miles over the speed limit. It was already 65 on this wide open, barely has any turns country road out in the middle of nowhere, Nevada. And it was maybe uh, 30 to 45 minutes after the sun came up. And so it was still that little bit of, little bit of twilight there, you know, post dawn sort of thing. And we were just coming around a large sweeping corner and I was doing about 80 miles an hour it was about 70, I think 70 was the speed limit, 65 or 70. So I was doing 75 or 80, one of the two. And we were in a rented Ford Edge. Now this truck had, again, I think it had less than 5,000 miles on it. I mean, it was brand new and, and it's an SUV and I've never been in one of these before, except for the drive it up there. And we're cruising along and this deer comes on the right sweeping turn. Oh, this deer no. comes from left to right. And he 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 goes left to right in front of my, right right in front of us, like he's running full steam right in front of us and I'm cruising it and he just popped up from nowhere too, actually it was a she, but she popped up from nowhere, so I didn't see her coming and if I hadn't slammed on my brakes when I did and swerved to the left we'd have taken her full on, right in the legs and when she would have gone through our windshield, but as it is, we, we hit the front right quarter panel and it destroyed the front right tire immediately, destroyed the whole front right side of the vehicle, but my wife was sitting in the passenger seat and she was bending down tight to making sure retying her boots. Like one of her boots had come untied. She's retiring her boots. And she's like, what was that? And she didn't even know that we had like really hit something. Wow. We destroyed that deer and destroyed the car. Like I, there was a pullout right there. So I pulled over and you know, the whole front right is coming into the tire that's already destroyed. And, and I looked at the front of the car and I almost couldn't believe the level of damage up there compared to the, the, the way that impact felt the airbags never went off. The crumple zones worked like a champ and that thing just took the impact. (laughs) (laughs) Wow! I mean, I I never really considered a Ford edge as a vehicle I would go buy someday, but that alone, that safety feature alone right there, the fact that the airbags didn't even go off on a front end impact because they didn't need to, the car's that smart. You know, there was no, we didn't even, if I hadn't slowed down, we wouldn't have slowed down. We'd just gone right through the damn thing. So it's, it's, it's a testament to, to vehicle safety these days to get new ones.
4: I, I think I'm noticing a trend, though. That uh, the the biggest danger is using a vehicle with not a lot of mileage on it.
3: Might be. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> right. They're not field yeah. tested.
2: <laughs> you know, I think I was just to kind of wrap it up in my mind. There were a few things that we did change. You know, one was driving the 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 driving, being a little bit more cognizant of the technology that you have with you to make sure you don't make assumptions. And then the other thing is, we, we still laugh about this now, that when we got out of the truck, we were like, oh my gosh, I don't, we were not thinking straight. <laughs> we thought, we can't leave all of our equipment here. I mean, this is expensive <laughs> stuff. We had our computers, <laughs> we had all these, we had all, multiple iPads, we had, you know, I had extra stuff because I always keep extra stuff in the truck. And it, it was so stupid because we're in the middle of nowhere, nowhere. who's going to come and steal? Like, they're going to go... It's like, there's, that's not going to happen. Right. So, but we were not thinking straight. And we, for the whole seven hours, we were hauling, like, computer bags, (laughs) purses and, and iPads. And I just like, it was dumb. So I decided now, because you're just, you know, when you go through something like that, even if you don't have any scratches or anything, your adrenaline's pumping, and you may not be thinking clearly, and you think, oh, I'm being smart here, I'm going to make sure things don't get stolen, you know, but you're really not being smart, because when cooler heads prevail, we probably wouldn't have taken that stuff, and then we took a bunch of water, so... The one thing is having a checklist for emer- an emergency checklist. So if you do end up in that situation, what are the things you need to take? And it's it's like a checklist, so you don't even have to think. You make sure that you're that you that you are taking what you what really is essential. And then the other things are, which believe it or not. I can't believe how many times, you know, we hire a new person, they come on, I say, and I, I go through a checklist with them, which I've already sent them, but apparently they don't always read them. But what what are some things you must have? You must have a certain amount of water. You must have something, some jerky, some granola bar, something in your bag. Even if you, this survey was supposed to take us uh, two hours, you know, who who would think we should be bringing jerky and granola bars and all that? You should always do that. Always bring it. And then the other thing is, you know, you end up, we're lucky that when the glass popped, that everything didn't like go flying out of the truck. We still had our electronics. But if we hadn't, you know how many people show up and don't bring a compass, which is still shocking to me, but they don't. And then you should always have a map with you. You should always have a map of the area. It's so easy these days. The crew chief should always print that out before they go out into you know project site these are things that will save your life and you know when we were walking the whole time and it's so funny we were saying bare bare naked and afraid we're like this is just like bare <laughs> naked and afraid except for we have our clothes on but <laughs> it was yeah it's just important to be overly prepared. You'll never ever regret it.
3: All right well we're gonna take our final break and come back and, and wrap this up and maybe tell a couple more stories. So we'll be back in just a second. All right, welcome back to Naked and Afraid CRM (laughs) War (laughs) Condition. <laughs> CRM Mark episode 195. So I had one more thing to say that you brought up, Heather, and it made me think of an old crew chief, well, really field director that I had, who was a total disaster from an organizational standpoint. Not that you were a total disaster, but it, it just, <laughs> it's all right. but it made me think about it because he had just like papers and boxes and all kinds of stuff in the back of his field truck. Like most of us went out in another vehicle and he was going around to different things and doing stuff. So he didn't really share a vehicle. He had stuff in the front seat. He had stuff in the back seat. When you were mentioning all these iPads, all these computers, boxes, you know, gear, things like that, that you guys hauled out of there. My first thought was, where was that when you were flipping over the truck and you're darn lucky that some of that didn't just hit you in the back of the head and knock you out true, um, true. or worse, you know, while the truck is, is flipping over. You never think about anything like that, but it's, It's not that hard to just, and you guys must have had, you either got lucky or you must have had your stuff relatively secure because if you just secure your stuff, even putting it in like a soft backpack or something like that will be better than just having it all laying out because you never know what's going to happen.
2: When I ordered the truck, at first I was kind of second guessing having done it, but I bought the one that had the cab with the compartments on the side, on both sides. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you can access, which actually is really. I, at first, I kind of second guessed it, but I'm really glad that I did it. It really helped with this situation, but it also helps with having those little things where otherwise, just like you said, with the the crew chief, crew chief you're talking about, where you're just kind of throwing things in. You have the best <laughs> laid plans. You put everything in a nice little box. Everything's neat, and then by the end of the project, it's like or after the first two days of a project it's all over the place. So we have these small compartments that are on the side of the cab that allows easy access to to the smaller things, smaller tools that you need. And then, so we, we did that that, and we did have everything was in, were in bags, uh, backpacks and stuff. Um, not that we did that because we thought we were going to flip, but <laughs> but it, it was because <laughs> that's how we carry those things anyway. So in that respect, we were, we were good.
3: Well, good. But something, something for listeners to think about, you know, when you're just tossing all that stuff in the back of the field vehicle, especially if you're, if you are a crew chief or field director and you dropped a bunch of people off and and maybe there's some extra gear and stuff back there because they didn't, they didn't need it or something like that. Right. man, you never know when you're going to go rolling down the side of a hill and just takes one of those things to hit you in the back of the head and, and knock you out.
2: Well, one one analogy I use or example I use with the trucks because it's a big pet peeve of mine when people show up and they're using a company truck, even their truck, but they're using a company truck. It's the only thing I have a right to say something about is the the condition of a truck. They don't keep they don't keep them clean. They don't keep them clean inside or outside. And so, think about f- firemen. Okay, firemen aren't doing that because they don't have anything better to do. OK, whether a fire district is busy, you know, fire station is busy or it's not busy, their trucks are always in absolute perfect shape. And that's because a well-maintained vehicle, technology, tools in general will work better. And so everybody sure. really, there are unfortunately way too many people that I've seen that their trucks, they're just horrible they're, and yeah. they're dangerous. They're, because of that, they are dangerous and you're inefficient. You can't find anything, you know. You think it takes extra time to pack everything back up? No, if you have a good organized way of doing things, it will save you time over, over the long run.
4: I think I think that's true, but I think I think that there's a certain amount of perceived organization versus like the way it actually works in the, in the field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Agreed. Perfect example. Of this is the project that I just finished up, which is my project. It was an excavation at multiple sites for the one project. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to have a separate binder for each site and, and all the paperwork, finished paperwork for each each of the sites is going to go into each binder. And then I'm going to have, you know, like the usual field forms also within the binder. And, and that'll be, you know, easy to access. It's all in one place, you know, makes perfect sense, right? The problem is it didn't quite work out that way in that you know, I had like things going on at multiple sites at one time at, you know, at any given moment. And then on top of it, like, you know, some of the forms that are basically formatted, like the spreads are formatted for like a three ring binder. I can't take a giant like a two inch three ring binder with me. So I ended up like reworking a lot of the spreads so that they would fit in like my write and Rain notebook, which is a much smaller, what is that, B6 or something? Much smaller uh, form factor. So I, I, th- I think that the idea of, well, this is how we're going to organize our gear sometimes falls by the wayside because it, it really doesn't work for the particular projects, you know, in the way that we imagine that they're going to. And And then, you know, along those lines, it's like, all archaeologists kind of gearheads, right? Like we're all sitting around, like you know, it'd be great right, right. if if I had like some sort of briefcase, like uh, thing, you know, carry all where I'd have compartments for the various, you know, binders and, and and stuff like that, and then it's all in one place, but it's organized so you know which pocket everything goes in, and it's like, yeah, those, those things cost like two hundred fifty dollars, right? It's like, and and you know, is the company buying it? No, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so you know, there, there's a certain amount of. In how we organize ourselves and and our gear, it's like, yeah, there there is probably a really good system, but you have to A, find it, B, be able to afford it, and and then you have to figure out how to operationalize it while we're constantly revising it and dealing with, you know, like every project's different, right? So what works great for one project, you know, all of a sudden you're like, wow, that's not working at all for this one.
2: It's a, it's definitely a process. And yeah, just like you said, each, each project's different, has different needs. And it has taken me a while to kind of organize those side compartments, but now I love it. And it's so much easier. And, you know, it's one example is like with the protocols with these, for the COVID-19, we had to have a checklist and it had to be, you know, according to the County we work in, you have to have, at every work site, you have to have it posted where it's clearly seen all your protocols and what the rules that people have to follow and the Mm. reminders. And think about that. That's, you know, that's easy in an office. It's not so easy (laughs) in a, with a truck in a field, right? So I was trying to think, okay, how am I going to do this where I can't, you know, oh, should I go? You, you always think about sometimes, or I do sometimes, the most complicated, hardest way to get to the answer. <laughs> Maybe that's just me, but I am definitely infamous for that. So I was thinking, oh, you know, I'll get some big fancy, get some mag- magnets. You know how we had those like you know, the company name magnets that you put on the side of the car and all that. And then one day I was like desperate. I had a clipboard. I had the protocols on that clipboard. And I just happened to have, you'll laugh, Chris, you say civil air patrol for the U S Naval Sea Cadet Corps, which is another junior ROTC group. Yeah. And I had from uniforms, I had two hangers from uniforms and I was like, we have little hooks. There's always hooks, for tying stuff on that big rack. And I just put it on, hung it on the hanger, clipped, and it's perfect. It's like the perfect answer and it costs nothing. Nice. <laughs> but it's just like Stephen said, it it just takes, it's a process. You got to figure out what works best for you.
3: Yeah, I, I can't even really focus anymore because I'm still just thinking about Stephen's paperwork and it's hurting my brain. <laughs> paperwork, Stephen, you're killing me. 10 years I've been telling you to go digital.
2: Oh, <laughs> <there>. <laughs> You you asked for it. You walked right into that, Stephen.
3: <laughs>
4: well, and, and you know, y- even so, like, yeah, you you have your uh, your iPad, but like, if your database isn't organized correctly, if, if your field yep. forms aren't organized correctly, sure. it all goes. you're like, yeah. oh, I need an extra field on that. Why don't you just put it in the comments? <laughs> yeah, that goes. Wrong. Yeah.
3: You know exactly what I'm talking about. So going back to your point, though, of, of things having a place in an organization, you know, like uh, like where that truck had where you could put stuff, Heather, as well. I always have pin flags are always my biggest pet peeve because, you know, they, people go out into the field and the pin flags are either sitting in a bucket or they're, you know, they might be nicely wrapped with a, a zip tie or flagging tape or something like that on day one. But then when everybody starts putting their pin flags in the back of the truck at the end of the day, they just get tossed into the back of the truck. Bent. And then okay. on some... Yeah, exactly. And then on some rain day, it's some Mm -hmm. lowly field tech's job to go straight and pin flags, right? I mean, who hasn't either been done or been told to – told someone to go straight and pin flags? And then it's just mind-numbingly stupid, right? Like, all you have to do is have a place for the pin flags. And I used – a long time ago, somebody showed me, like, how to make a PVC tube just, like, with a round end cap on it Mm -hmm. to put in my backpack or on the outside of my backpack to hold my pin flags. Like a quiver. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And I took that concept and I said – You know, everybody, not everybody does that kind of thing. In fact, I haven't seen a lot of people that do that. And more more people, more often than not, people are either just holding on to them or they just jam them down in their backpack and they're just sitting out there. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But I got the two inch PVC and I put one on, I put one in both trucks when I was on that bigger project. And we had a lot of pin flags and a lot of people. And I put one in both the trucks and I said, pin flags go here. Like they don't go in the back of the truck, they go here. And so they're always, there's a location for them. There's always has a, there's a spot for them. And, you know, we always had one of the smaller action packers in the back and that's where, you know, anything for truck safety or anything like that, you know, wheel chocks, stuff like that, all that goes in there. And then it has it has a location. You know, you can tell people, oh, put this over here and this over here. But if you don't have an actual spot for it, then it's just going to be laying out. And that's going to be dangerous later on. It could be dangerous because it's flying around the truck when you're when you're, you know, crashing, or it could be dangerous when you need something in a hurry, some sort of emergency device. Like you don't know where the fire extinguisher is it's a different it's in a different place in every truck it should be in the same place in every truck within reason you know certain trucks are shaped differently but it should be in the same location so you know exactly where to get that fire extinguisher you know and anything else you might need first aid kit stuff like that there, there's a reason the military has everything look the same mm-hmm. it's so they only have to train you once
2: right,
3: yes. <laughs> and, right? and then yes. once you learn it you know where everything is like it's just it's a system and you know you know how to find stuff easily and quickly
2: Unfortunately, I think we have a lot of people in our business that like to, I don't know, and I'll say this because I can say it because I'm in the business, but we're know-it-alls, you know, everybody thinks I can do it better. And that's another thing about the military is, you know what? I don't care if you think you can do it better. You're not doing it. You're doing it my way. <laughs> so, you know, when you're in charge, you can do it your way. Right now we're doing it this way. And and because there's not this and I, I totally get the egalitarian, the you know, the the crew you know, the mentality of everybody having an input, that's important, but there's a point where you do have to have some consistency for efficiency, right? And so I, I actually have one quick question since we're talking about pin flags real quick. It's completely unrelated, but it's funny. So has anybody <laughs> played lawn darts with pin flags or am I the only one? Played what? Do we ever lawn darts? Of course.
3: Oh, lawn darts. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I can't put a pin flag in my hand without rolling up the flag and then chucking the pin flag. <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay. I'm not the other one. Good, good, good. I, I think that's the most fun thing. But I, when I bring it, I bring, I bring it up on a, you know, on a field survey. We're kind of like in between things. Try to do it. It's like this epiphany for nobody else saw it. So like, I can't be the only one who
4: knows about this. Well, I, I think, I think that's a uh, being of a certain age sort of thing. Because uh, maybe, yeah, lawn darts are not a thing anymore. They, they're not legal. I don't think. Yeah. Well, and they were so hefty.
2: So maybe I shouldn't bring this yeah, up.
4: I don't. I don't know anybody who ever, actually ever got hurt by them, but like I can totally imagine serious injury.
3: Yes. I. <laughs> I don't know how my brother and I didn't get hurt by them. We had, a, we had a big set. We had like two or three sets of lawn darts that were all cobbled together into one. And I mean, literally standing on either end of a big lawn together up at like my grandfather's place, which is right down the street from our house and chucking those lawn darts at each other. I mean, really throwing them at each other. And I don't, I mean, they're just like straight up metal steel darts. And, you know, and then when 4th of July came around, then we're launching Roman candles at each other. So, you know, it was all in the same era.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, pin flags are just not as dangerous. And they actually work surprisingly well when you're bored on lunch <laughs> that's right
3: i mean if you can if you can roll that flag up tight on a nice metal pin flag the fiberglass ones don't do it as well but the the metal ones if you got a nice straight pin flag you roll that flag up tight, and then you hold on the flag and chuck it. Man, you can get it going. You can almost toss it thirty meters if you if you really yep. get the get the wind with your favor. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, we are going to wrap this up a little bit early because we went long on the other two segments. But is there anything else that that you guys want to bring up from a safety standpoint or lessons learned from this example? I'm glad you brought this up too, Heather, because like steven said at one of the breaks, I don't have anything that even comes close to this. I mean, I've got a lot of small things, but this you you guys really could have this this could have gone sideways literally in a in a hurry. It did go sideways and one or both of you. (laughs) Well, yeah, you did go sideways. That was the problem, right? Right. (laughs) But it's good that you came away from it with, I guess, good spirits. I mean, you could easily get, and I'd like to put this out too, if you've been through something like this, because I do know somebody else, it wasn't work related, but they were through a pretty bad car accident and there were actually fatalities, not people they knew. It, It was part of the rest of the accident and they didn't come away from it too good either. I mean, they survived, but you know, you, if you, especially if you're doing this for work or something like that if you're in something like that, you may not realize it, but you could be suffering from some pretty bad PTSD after that incident. And it, you might not even yeah. recognize what's going on. You're just, you're nervous. You're, you're, you're not focusing properly and you need to talk to somebody about it. You really need to talk to somebody about it.
2: I will have to say I, I had dreams about it after that. I'm sure. I really did. I, where it didn't go, it didn't go the way it did. <laughs> I, I had some poor dreams about that. And it did end up going down the ravine. And and there were times where I was in the truck and I would feel certain. So I can imagine if it had gone even worse, that certainly would have been an issue. And I do think that, you know, overall, sometimes, you know, We try to be those, you know, archaeologists, we do try to be fearless and tough. And I think there is a time for that. There is a time where, you know, sometimes you just got to suck it up, but never at the expense of safety. And I think that that's one thing that we should really take away from this is that there are some really cool things we got to do is, you know, that are connected job, but we should always do that in a safe manner. And we should always make sure that we are prepared and not assume or go by the seat of our pants when it comes to safety, because, you know, there are times where you may be asked to You know, you know how to drive an ATM or whatever. You know, I've been on projects where we had to drive an ATM.
3: An an ATV.
2: Did I say ATM? I'm sorry. An ATM. Wow, that's
3: pretty awesome. Like, you know, free cash.
2: (laughs) No, I would tell you to edit that out, but it's too funny. So keep it in. Probably not Um, going to. (laughs) ATV. Yeah, on my side business because I don't make enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, put a chain around the ATM. Uh, No, but the. The um ATV, sorry. And there's no shame in saying, I don't know. And they'll train you. Just just allow, you know, always be safe. Never, you know, take those kind of chances. It's not worth it. And then in the long run, you'll enjoy yourself more because you'll be prepared and you'll be doing it in a you
4: know, safe manner. So that's Mama Heather. Indeed.
3: <laughs> Last
4: words. <laughs> I, I, I have one follow on. There's like one thing we didn't really touch on. I mean, we touched about driver training and like, you know, various safety things, because a lot of this stuff is part of your safety plan and, and, you know, the way your company does stuff. But the one thing we didn't talk about is, and I might be getting part of this story wrong, but there was the point, Heather, when like you had people being like, well, do you need a ride back? And you're like, no, 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 we can walk back. It's, It's that don't feel you know, bad about like asking for assistance yes right. and and the idea of like well we we drove in so we're just going to walk out it's like well we'll start walking out and you can come and pick us up and we'll meet you where wherever on the road right and and that way that that would have been way better
2: <laughs> excellent excellent point we we actually did not with this whole seven hours it took us seven hours to get to a road so nobody would have been able to get us out except for by helicopter quite honestly but i absolutely agree in general i totally agree with you although you're right they we could have just walked up the way we came and they could have picked us up there you're right that would have been a better way to go you're right <laughs> but it's i totally agree with you you know you're it's just that macho, like you were saying before, Chris, male or female, that, that machismo. Right. I'm, you know, tough. I'm going to be able to handle it. And also, you know, we really thought it was only going to take two hours. Well, we weren't thinking properly because two hours, but there's ravines. We ran into poison oak. We couldn't go the way we thought we were going to go. You know, it's just, it's, you're right. It's better to be safe and there's no, um, no shame in asking for help for sure.
3: All right. Well, on that note, we're going to end this podcast. But since I'm sure Heather's going to make all new employees listen to this episode, I will say that concludes your corporate safety training for the day. <laughs> you can go to lunch now. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously though, uh, send in send in your field stories, and maybe we'll we'll bring you on the podcast. Because if we can yeah. learn as much as we did from from Heather's from one of your field stories, then you know certainly bring it on. Because I know I know there's been a lot of crazy things out there. I could have told uh, a number of stories that I've just heard. I, again, I haven't had anything that serious, but I've heard of plenty of other things. And but I'd love to hear it from the from the people these things happen to, because nobody's going to learn a lesson better or be able to tell it better than the person who it happened to. So if you got anything, send us a send us a note. You know, shoot us a message on Twitter or Chris at ArchaeologyPodcastNetwork.com, and you can uh, email us that way. So again, thanks, guys, and thanks everybody for listening. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show. Or in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash CRMARCpodcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at archpodnet.com members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we will see you in the field. Goodbye.
4: Bye.
2: Goodbye. Stay safe out there.
3: This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective.
0: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.